Good afternoon. My name is Tim Lynch. Uh, I direct Cato's project on criminal justice. I want to welcome you guys to our F.A. Hayek Auditorium. You know, it's a real treat for Cato to be hosting the screening of this new documentary film, America's Longest War, uh, put together by our friends from the Reason Foundation. And I think, you know, the, the timing of this film couldn't be better. Um, there's so much happening in the world of drug policy right now. As most of you know, last November, uh, voters in two states, uh, Colorado and Washington, approved uh, initiatives that would legalize marijuana in those two states. And there was an interesting hearing on Capitol Hill just a week ago on the interaction between these uh, state initiatives and, and federal law, because under federal law, drugs uh, remain uh, prohibited. But uh, this hearing was before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And uh, one of the witnesses was the sheriff uh, from the Seattle area of Washington. And he really uh, put it out there. He said that the war on drugs is a failure. And uh, his, uh, the people in the state of Washington, his constituents, if you will, they're ready for a new policy. And uh, he said he's fully supportive of, of this new policy. He's committed to it. And he's had to, you know, nudge his officers who, who are a little bit more skeptical. He says, like, we work for the people in the community. The people in the community are ready for a change, and he's, he's committed to it. The chairman of the committee, uh, Patrick Leahy, the Democrat from Vermont, also had some interesting things to say. He said that uh, nobody's really satisfied with the status quo uh, of drug policy. He said uh, black market is thriving despite the billions of dollars that has been poured into law enforcement over the years. He said... Uh, Black market uh, violence endangers public safety. He said the drug war contributes to our soaring prison population, and the war policy has a disproportionate effect on people of color. Now, these have been common criticisms uh, of the drug war, but what is uncommon is to hear these arguments coming from a senator uh, during the hearings. Um, that is something uh, that we don't hear very much, but it's, I think, a sign of how the politics of drug policy are, are changing. Another sign of that was the Republican response during this hearing. I was very curious to see who was going to show up and the things that they had to say about what Washington and Colorado were doing. And when we got to the hearing, there's just this long row of empty seats. Most of the Republican senators did not show up to attend this hearing. The only GOP senator to attend was Charles Grassley um, from Iowa. And so for people who have been following drug policy for years, you know, this would not have happened 10 years ago. A lot of people on the GOP side would have seen this hearing as a, an opportunity to go in and to attack uh, a Democratic president and his administration for being soft on drugs, soft on crime. So it was very interesting that they didn't turn out to this hearing uh, to make those kinds of uh, political points. Now, outside of the United States, things are happening as well. In uh, Latin America, Uruguay, is now poised to also legalize uh, marijuana. That's going to be coming in the next few months, if not uh, weeks. And uh, in Europe, Portugal has already moved to decriminalize all drugs, not just marijuana. So there's a lot of momentum going on in the, in the direction of reform. And I think this film is going to help build even more support uh, for ending the war, both here in the United States and around the world. The film itself runs for about 60 minutes. And then we're going to shift to a panel discussion uh, and, and take your questions. Uh, before we start the film, let me ask those of you who came with cell phones, if you just take a moment now just to um, 
double check and make sure that they are turned off uh, as a courtesy to your neighbors. We must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one in the United States, the problem of dangerous drugs. Every day it goes on means more innocent people being hurt. It means wasting 50 to 100 billion dollars a year. Half of what we spend on law enforcement, the courts and the prisons is drug related. You can buy almost any illegal drug, any city in this country, almost any neighborhood in this country, 24-7. The war on drugs has been an utter failure. When I look at Mexico today, it's like Chicago during the days of Al Capone times 50. 50,000 people have been murdered. They haven't made a dent since Nixon made marijuana schedule one drug in 1970. They're never going to make a dent. This is a colossal failure. I want the president to know that he is not treating all of his citizens with the love and care that he promised them. Am I uh, willing to uh, pursue a decriminalization strategy uh, as an approach? Uh, no. Okay, we are ready to start the panel discussion and reaction uh, to the film. My plan is to introduce uh, each speaker in turn, and I've asked the panelists to speak for about 10 or 15 minutes on drug policy, the reaction to the film, basically uh, their thoughts on where we are and where we need to go. Um, and after that, we'll take your questions and, and, and comments. Um, our first speaker is the man behind America's Longest War. Uh, he's an award-winning uh, producer from Reason TV. And his previous films include uh, Mississippi Drug War Blues, which is about the Corey May case that was uh, briefly touched on in the film. Uh, another film, Reason Saves Cleveland, with uh, Drew Carey. And a third film, uh, Abandoned in Guatemala. All of these films uh, received multiple awards. Um, he's going to share his thoughts on why he undertook this project, uh, some of the things he learned along the way of, of making the film. And I also hope he'll share some of his plans for uh, promoting the film, which is just now rolling out uh, in theaters around the country. So would you please welcome the producer and director of America's Longest War, Paul Fine. Uh, thanks very much, Tim, and thanks everybody for coming out. Thanks to Cato, um, and thanks to Cato for the Vicente Fox footage. That's where we got that. We appreciate that. Um, I'll just say a few things. I mean, uh, for those of us who've been around the sort of libertarian movement or the drug uh, policy uh, reform movement, you know, I mean, this has been a long time coming. And one of the interesting things, and this is pointed out in the film, is it's something that's really in the background. We don't, we take it for granted. Uh, unless you're busted or know people that are busted, uh, you know, it's something that's very easy to forget about, uh, not so dissimilar to, you know, to the recent wars that are now wrapping up in the Middle East. Um, and we'll see about uh, potential future wars. Um, 
So it's, it's, it's great that there's more support. There are indications that things are changing, which is great. Um, we're still at Reason TV covering stories where people are still going to prison. They're still getting their property seized. They're having their children taken away from them, even though it seems like everybody sees the writing on the wall, especially in a place like California, where I live. Um, just uh, for, for this film right now, we've had a few screenings so far. Uh, we're doing a big screening in New York City on the 24th uh, next week uh, at the French Institute. Um, and then we'll be doing uh, uh, subsequent screening, screenings around the country. The film will be available uh, uh, through Amazon on, in DVD format uh, next week as well. Uh, the, films, the distribution rights have been sold to uh, Java Films, which is a Paris-based uh, distribution company. Uh, they're actively selling the film uh, in Europe and elsewhere globally right now. And then the film will be available uh, on Netflix uh, and other uh, video-on-demand platforms uh, in a few months. Um, so I'll let other people talk right now. You've seen what I had to say. So thanks very much for coming out. Thanks, Paul. Uh, our second speaker has uh, one of the most daunting jobs, I think, uh, here in the capital city, because her job is to make sure that the federal government stays within its proper sphere and does not violate the Bill of Rights. Cato works with the ACLU. Uh, sometimes we sign on to joint amicus briefs on important cases that reach the Supreme Court. But Laura Murphy directs the legislative office of the ACLU. And so she fights the battle in the legislature way before controversies arrive and get into court and start reaching their way uh, up to the Supreme Court. Uh, she's kind of like a civil liberties first responder. Uh, she's there way before the, the, the lawyers start uh, filing cases in court. And she's very good at her job. Um, from time to time, newspapers like Roll Call and The Hill make a list of the 50 most influential lobbyists in town. And Laura Murphy makes that list because uh, she knows how to build coalitions around constitutional principles. She's testified before Congress more than a dozen times, and she's played a key role in the first repeal of a federal mandatory minimum law uh, since the Nixon administration. That was the Fair Sentencing Act of, of 2010. And I should also point out that a, a few weeks ago when George Zimmerman was uh, acquitted by the Florida jury in the Trayvon Martin case, there was a lot of groups on the left who called out for the federal government and Attorney General Holder to intervene and to bring a federal case against Zimmerman in federal court. And Laura Murphy wrote a letter to Attorney General Holder reminding him of the double jeopardy provision in the Constitution. So it's principled stands like that uh, that I think make her such an effective advocate. So would you please welcome Laura Murphy. Well, first, I want to congratulate you, Paul, for a great movie and a great documentary. Um, and my only regret is that you didn't include the ACLU, but what can I say? Well, we had a very short clip um, from, uh, uh, I'm forgetting your name all of a sudden, from Washington, from Seattle, who was working. Allison. Allison was on. Allison Holcomb was on for short. She, was, she had a much bigger role before they passed it, yes. shall we say. Yes, yes. Well, aside from that, I think it lays out the problem that we have in this nation with drug prohibition and all of the constitutional rights and values that we hold dear are implicated by this war on drugs. It is a failed war, and in, especially in the area of marijuana, we can see that um, 
really the war isn't having any impact on the rates of usage. Uh, we've been at the forefront of the legalization movement. We've aggressively defended the rights of states to enact medical marijuana laws on behalf of sick patients. We work both on litigation and advocacy in state legislatures and the Congress to challenge racially biased police practices that result in the unnecessary arrest and incarceration of people for, for low-level offenses, including marijuana. But we arrest too many people. Between 2001 and 2010, there were over 8 million pot arrests in the U.S., and that's one arrest every 30 second, 37 seconds, and hundreds of thousands of people unnecessarily ensnared in the criminal justice system. Over 50% of all drug arrests in 2010 were for marijuana. Blacks are 3.73 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession, even though the usage rates between blacks and whites are comparable. In some areas, the disparity is as high as eight. Here in Washington, D.C., you are, I think, six times more likely to be arrested for marijuana if you're black than if you're white. Um, we've also recently learned that the National Security Aid Agency spying that has occurred has led to the use of American phone records that have been collected being turned over to the DEA and other drug enforcement agencies. So I think we have to ask a question, which is, what kind of society do we want to live in? Do we want to enrich people who build prisons? Um, do we want to create a system that allows for people's families to be torn apart for nonviolent offenses that prevents people from voting? This is a huge waste of taxpayer dollars. And I just want to thank Cato for having forums like these. Um, we're seeing that in states like Georgia, uh, an issue that we've worked closely together on, civil asset forfeiture, um, like $2.7 million is seized, uh, $2.7 million worth of property is seized without people being convicted of drug crimes. And that is one of the largest sources of income for the police departments in the state of Georgia. And so asset forfeiture is implicated. Also, the militarization of police, uh, the grants that the federal government is giving um, police uh, officers, they're called burn grants and grants through the COPS program, are leading to these SWAT-like groups in many jurisdictions. And the question is, why are we arming police in this fashion? At first, a rapid increase of this kind uh, was done in the 1994 crime bill that Bill Clinton talked about in the documentary. But the second big increase was uh, after the 9-11 attacks, every, um, every elected official practically in Congress wanted to make sure that local police departments had the resources to fight terrorism. And what we've seen is those resources have been used to fight a war on drugs. 
So I won't uh, go on and on, but I do feel that this is the moment. We have a critical mass of Republicans and Democrats who feel that the war on drugs has failed. The next thing that needs to happen is Congress needs to act. The attorney general is already telling his U.S. attorneys not to charge mandatory minimum sentences for certain crimes, and we should applaud him for that. But the laws are still on the books, and many of those U.S. attorneys are not going to change their policies as long as the laws are on the books. So I'm looking forward to helping to build a national coalition to get Congress to pass legislation that would eliminate mandatory minimums or at least create a safety valve so that people who are nonviolent first-time offenders are not filling up our jails. I'll stop there. Thank you, Laura. Michael Barone is widely regarded as one of the most astute observers of the American political scene. And he's authored several books, but I think he's best known for his work on the Almanac of American Politics, which has profiles of each member of Congress as well as all of the governors. Uh, It's a reference work for everyone involved in politics, journalists, academics, and, and policymakers. He's a resident fellow of the American Enterprise Institute, a contributor to the Fox News Channel, and he has a regular column uh, with the Washington Examiner. I invited him because one of his recent columns uh, talked about and noted that our criminal justice system is undergoing uh, some pretty serious changes. He wrote that there's interesting coalitions of black liberals with religious and fiscal conservatives that are arguing that the prison uh, building broom has gone too far And he's wrote that there's something very discordant about the fact that in some jurisdictions there's mandatory five-year penalties for marijuana possession, while in Colorado and Washington State these substances are now legal. So would you please welcome Michael Barone. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be here, and I want to congratulate Paul Fine on a uh, very effective uh, work of advocacy. Uh, I, I have one minor criticism. Um, it, I would have made a little more of the endorsement at the very end of uh, uh, abolition of prohibition of drugs on uh, repeal, I guess we should call it, uh, by presidents, former President Zedillo of Mexico and former President Cardoso of Brazil. Uh, these are two really people of, of, of considerable stature and accomplishment in their service to their countries. And... Uh, and also George Schultz, our former Secretary of State and Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, Pat Moynihan, the late senator from New York, used to tell a story about when he was in the Nixon administration, and he said uh, he he went, and George Schultz was as well, uh, he went up to George Schultz at some reception and said, you know, we've cut out the uh, Marseille connection, the French connection, you know, the Mars, the environment of drugs and so forth. Uh, and uh, George Schultz said, well, that's very interesting. He said, uh, what do you think will come next? And Moynihan says, I know you're going to say something about supply and demand. Uh, and, he, and George Schultz says, yeah, I was. Uh, and uh, I think that's an interesting story. Um, I come for, at this problem, at this issue with the beginning assumption that is in tension perhaps with your uh, uh, your your documentary, um, 
but I think not necessarily so. I mean, I think societies and governments have reasons to consider prohibiting mind-altering substances, euphoriacs and things. There are public health reasons that can at least theoretically justify this from what I know of the use of methamphetamines right now in, the, in terms of the health effects on the individuals who use these a lot. Uh, it's pretty horrifying. Uh, and we probably should be trying to do that, even if I don't like having to go sign for my Sudafed with the uh, pharmacist at CVS. Um, you know, there may be good reasons for that. Um, but I think, as uh, Tim made reference to, I referred to my comment, I think there's something troubling in the dissonance between the idea of a five-year uh, a person getting a five-year mandatory federal minimum in one state where you've got medical marijuana clinics operating, um, sometimes under harassment by the federal government, often not, um, in, in daily life. There's something that, uh, that says there's maybe an injustice here. I think that one of the things that um, people who feel that way should address is to address the, uh, the executive, uh, the president, state governors, all or almost all of which have clemency powers and the ability to reduce sentences. Is that true, Laura? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, or, or they have parole uh, clemency commissions. Clemency commissions. Uh, you know, the the uh, uh, quality of mercy is not strained. I think if you're you're holding people in prison like this, even if the man, the minimum is mandatory. Um, uh, and and I have some trouble about. Attorney General Holder saying we're not going to enforce this law. It seems to me that this administration on a variety of issues ranging from Obamacare to this one has uh, been violating the president's duty under the, under, uh, the Constitution to faithfully execute the law. And I think this I, I'm open to arguments that this is, is one of those instances. I haven't tried to settle the question for myself, but... Um, Nonetheless, the exercise of clemency is an established power of government. Uh, the president can commute sentences or, or pardon people. Uh, the past two presidents, uh, President Obama and President George W. Bush, exercised the pardon power very, very little as compared to other presidents historically. And perhaps Bill Clinton is a little bit to blame for that with the way he exercised that power in his last day in office. But nonetheless, um, I, I think that there is a case and advocates uh, might want to highlight the cases that some of these individuals are highlighting. You know, a father separated from his growing children for 10 years for what seems like a pretty innocuous level of, of violation of the law. Um, wouldn't you know for that man that was reunited after uh, 20 years in prison in Seattle? Uh, why didn't somebody ask the, the, the president or the government? I guess that was a federal offense. Uh, they did over and over again. It's a long and convoluted story. But if I was a, a local activist, can do this with where you have state sentences with the state governors or clemency boards or so forth. And if we're going to be repealing laws against marijuana, I think there's something dissonant about keeping people in jail uh, for having possession of marijuana. Now, as the film pointed out, we've you know we have experienced something uh, like this before on mind-altering substances with the prohibition of alcohol uh, by the 18th Amendment. Uh, 
something, by the way, was uh, backed by the feminists of the day, organized, among other things, in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Uh, I think, you know, in considering these issues, uh, prohibition did have positive public health benefits. You had a reduction, you had, generally speaking, a reduction in alcohol use, a reduction in alcohol-related illness, death, and violence uh, that was, by on at least in its own terms, a positive thing for the country. You also had basically non-enforcement of the law and the criminalization of distribution in big cities like um, New York, Chicago, and my native Detroit, which of course lies just north of Canada across a mile wide, less than mile wide river, on which there are lots of pleasure boats on any summer day and, and over which, and which freezes over in the winter, winter so you can drive a car across it. Um, prohibition was not effective for that reason. And uh, the government uh, decided to legalize. One re- reason was that uh, President Roosevelt had wanted to cultivate support in the, in the anti-prohibition jurisdictions, including his own state of New York, which was then a target state, not a safe democratic state. Uh, and um, you, had, uh, you also have a provision of the 21st Amendment that specifically authorizes individual states to continue to prohibit alcohol and to prohibit the transport of alcohol through their territory. Uh, and that's uh, at least an interesting example of how you, can, how you can reconcile marijuana prohibiting versus marijuana permitting states. At least the, the repealers of prohibition were thinking about that. And we did have many states that uh, kept prohibition of alcohol to varying extents uh, and with varying degrees of effectiveness and laws that were preserved in many cases by what they used to call the bootleggers and Baptist Alliance, the, uh, the, the criminal uh, distributors together with the people that wanted to prohibit altogether. Um, but nonetheless, that policy succeeded. Um, this movie starts, interestingly, with President Nixon in that year. I think one thing for us to remember, if you're in a frame of mind saying, how could such a monstrous injustice have happened, is that when pres- in, the, in the decade of 1965-75, and a majority of that decade, President Nixon was the president, uh, we saw a rise in violent crime, also in welfare dependency, tripling in the United States. This was an alarming development. This was the backdrop against which uh, President Nixon was uh, trying to deal with this issue and other public officials. And you, you know, I might have mentioned, I believe, Governor Nelson Rockefeller in New York, a liberal Republican, big spe- Big spender. He used to spend the government's money as if it was his own. Um, they uh, signed a mandatory minimum law uh, in New York uh, in, in, in during that period, which I believe is still in effect. I don't know um, on that subject, but that's where we were operating. And I think much of our quote tough on crime policies uh, may well have been justified at that time. We had that period, and and in some years afterwards. And I think that the, um, the arguments that uh, marijuana was a gateway drug to other drugs which would produce illegal, violent, family-destroying behavior um, was a fairly strong argument in those days. Uh, crime basically plateaued. It increased with the so-called crack cocaine epidemic in the late 80s. It plateaued for 20 years and then in my judgment, largely because of the police tactics of uh, Mayor Rudy Giuliani and other officials, 
it has gone down, and we seem to have a more law-abiding population uh, generally. Certainly the rates of violent crime would seem to suggest that. Um, the, um, so I think many of the measures that we had, including mandatory minimums for violent crimes, uh, were, in my judgment, policies that worked uh, for a while that were needed, policies that worked, and policies that don't seem to be needed anymore and that we should probably change. And I think uh, your film here makes a powerful case that laws prohibiting possession of marijuana uh, are in that category, in the category at least of policies that uh, don't seem to be needed anymore and ought to be changed. Okay, we're gonna open it up. We have some time to take a few questions. Uh, when when I call on you, please wait for the microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question, identify yourself and any affiliation that you might have, and keep them brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. Yes, sir. My name is Stephen Shore. I agreed with the thrust of the film and with its policy recommendations, but one issue it did not touch on is the medical effectiveness of marijuana. I know of no independent studies by FDA or any other group that would confirm that marijuana does indeed have medicinal uses. And I think it would help the movement toward legalization if such studies were completed and showing that, yes, marijuana will work for conditions A, B, and C, but it are, is ineffective for D, E, and F or whatever. But I think it would really, there's no harm, if in, in the absence of scientific proof to sell a product for alleged benefits that it is not proven to have um, is problematic. Paul? Uh, yeah, thanks. It's a great question. I mean, that's, that's a really important topic, and it's one that we've covered on our sort of daily, you know, this film and other films are, are, are um, anomalous for Reason TV. We're putting stuff out every day, and on a lot of the other programs, we cover medical marijuana very uh, directly and talk about the, uh, the, the gateway drug, for example. One guy we talked to up in, Ven in, into, in Ventura, California, um, he's an engineer out on the oil rigs, and uh, <clears throat> he has multiple sclerosis. He's on, you know, had a regimen of eight or nine different drugs. He was depressed, and as he said, well, of course I'm depressed. I'm, yeah, I have multiple sclerosis. It sucks, right? I mean, the guy had a lot of issues, um, and he wasn't happy, and he was, you know, they give him one thing, but it would keep him awake. They give him something to put him to sleep, and then he'd be sad, and they give him something else. And, and, and in addition to the drugs that went uh, effective, or that were supposed to be effective for MS, um, and he was drinking a lot. And uh, he got turned on to medical marijuana. He started doing it. He dropped, uh, he dropped six of his different medications, and he slowed down his drinking dramatically. And he said, yeah, it's a gateway drug, but the gate swings both ways. And that's one of the ways that not only marijuana, but there's also evidence in recent studies uh, looking at uh, um, psychedelics uh, like psilocybin um, that are also shown to be effective to help people with addictions to other kinds of more problematic drugs. Um, there's one, uh, if you look at, uh, one of the biggest problems with studying things like marijuana is the federal government has control over the supply of marijuana. They produce really crappy, low-grade pot, uh, and, and, and that you have to get it from them in order to do proper studies. That's 
There are, have been a few exceptions. The UC California system a few years ago um, was able to get some of that to do some testings, and they found very good results. There's lots of studies that have been done outside of the country. Um, but this, you know, part of the drug war has been to make it difficult for that research to be accomplished, and that's a, a huge uh, issue. But I have a fundamental liberty question. I mean, what is why do we, in order to regulate and tax marijuana, have to prove any effectiveness or even to have, uh, I think medical marijuana is a, is a step toward decriminalization. And for that, I'm supportive. But I really think all of these drugs should be decriminalized because we know about the harmful effects of tobacco and of alcohol, and yet we don't arrest people for those things. So I just think in terms of individual liberty, we ought to have the right to ingest whatever we feel is appropriate if we are not harming anyone else and if we are not engaged in other criminal activity. Why should that behavior be criminalized? Is that Would you go that way on meth? I would too, yes, because I People think... People lose their teeth and things. It's sort of horrible. I know, but that's addiction, and addiction is a different problem. I'm talking about, I think there are some very horrible prescription drugs on the market that have horrible side effects, that have somehow won FDA approval, and that make your hair fall out. I mean, chemotherapy. Chemotherapy you, drugs are very harmful. They're very yeah. harmful. But yet we've authorized those and figured out a way to have them issued in a supervised uh, fashion. So I just think the premise of I would like to start with marijuana because it's more popular than anything else. And it seems like it it transcends race and community and class. People want to use it. That's clear. But I think the bigger issue is uh, decriminalization um, for all of these drugs so that they can be then properly regulated and taxed. Okay. Yes, sir. My name is Gustavo Rizmendi. I'm from Uruguay, the country you mentioned we, we passed a law about the marijuana. I like what she just said about the legalizing the things and regulate, because see, this is a very important thing. Uh, uh, we just passed uh, a law uh, allowing the, the cultivation of marijuana. For, uh, and the reason why was two things. First, uh, the government tried to eliminate the consumption uh, of a hard drug called pasta base, uh, literally translatable in English to uh, crack, which is a very uh, strong issue here uh, in, in Uruguay now. And uh, the other idea why they, they're trying to do that is because they want to eliminate the possibility to create a sub, uh, an underground world, a market for uh, illegal, low-quality uh, marijuana. And uh, uh, regarding what he just said um, about the beneficial uh, um, properties on consuming marijuana, um, I just saw, uh, saw there in my homeland um, an interview with the chief of psychiatry of the British Hospital, and he was in the part of the idea of uh, the um, harmful effects of marijuana, saying that uh, marijuana increases the schizophrenic uh, possibility, and, and, and in people with a depressing uh, kind of status, uh, consumption of marijuana could... Uh, um, 
exacerbate, if that's, if that word exists, exacerbate, exacerbar, the potentiality of uh, suicide. But uh, that's uh, from the medical point of view, but from the market point of view and from the evidence we have, uh, the two things, as I mentioned, was to eliminate the possibility of uh, crime, uh, guns regarding marijuana, and um, the other thing was to, to yeah, well. Questions, or are you making this No, uh, no, just, it was just a comment, uh, and um, I didn't know that uh, when the, the police officer decides the, 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 the properties and they, con they confiscate the things that went back to, to police agencies that it's really creepy and scary. And that's one of the things that's very little known in the United States, and it's, 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 extremely po it's, it's an extremely popular activity on, on law enforcement. We're doing a story right now based in Anaheim, California. Um, this is a city that uh, is, has just seized or using uh, equitable sharing, which, which is where Californians passed a law to make it more difficult um, for law enforcement to seize property. But what they can do is the feds don't have those restrictions, so they have the feds come out, seize the property, and they split the take. So in this instance, there was a guy who had a $1.5 million office building, and he was renting to uh, a, a medical marijuana dispensary, two of them. And they took his property, and now they're trying to take it. 1.5 million bucks. Uh, in, the Institute for Justice is on this case right now. Uh, the interesting thing, uh, one interesting thing about that case is that in July, at the Anaheim Convention Center, which is owned by the city of Anaheim, they rented out to the Cush Expo, which, the, which is the largest medical marijuana um, convention in the world. And they have a place outside where if you show your doctor's recommendation, you can smoke pot. Um, so the, the hypocrisy is deep and abiding. And I think you know, one of the things that, that's happening is that because the raids get bad press and there's all this pro-pot reform, uh, pot law reform going on, the, the civil forfeiture stuff, they can go in, they can get money, and they can go after the landlords. And the, these guys are not even the ones that are out there selling. They're not in the industry. But it's a way to really clamp down. And they've done that systematically across all over California, and they continue to do so despite what, what's happening in other uh, states. Boy, I, that's seizure of the landlord's property seems to me to be a due process problem. Maybe, Laurie, would you think so? Oh, it's absolutely a due process problem, and there's no right to counsel in those proceedings. And so sometimes hiring a lawyer costs more than the value of the property. Uh, I'll just give you a couple of statistics. In 1985, the Justice Department took in $27 million in asset forfeiture proceeds. In 2012, the number ballooned to $4.2 billion. And so there's an incentive for the government, state and local and federal, to seize the property, then have you come in and prove that you were not um, aiding and abetting a criminal enterprise. And so instead of the burden being on the government to prove that you were intentionally engaged in criminal activity, it then falls on you to prove that you were not intentionally engaged in criminal activity. And we've worked a lot on that. We lost a dear friend in the form of Congressman Henry Hyde, who, who cared about that. But we've got a long way to go on asset forfeiture. Yeah, he used to say, instead of being presumed innocent, we flipped it around. You're presumed guilty, and you have to go to court to prove that. We thought it was uh, ridiculous. Yes, Sanho, did you have a question? Sanho Tree from the Institute for Policy Studies. My question is about the Cole Memorandum or the DOJ uh, policy that was issued at the end of last month. 
uh, where they uh, issued guidance to the U.S. attorneys to deprioritize uh, certain marijuana offenses and stuff. At the end of the day, how enforceable is this guidance memorandum? Uh, my understanding is it doesn't negate and can't negate the laws of Congress. Um, but on the other hand, Congress didn't appropriate infinite funds to enforce every law in the book, so they have to prioritize. But at the end of the day, how much weight does it carry with regard to each individual U.S. attorney, particularly the four out west that are causing most of the problems in this regard? I think it's a very good question. And we are concerned that he, the, the attorney general is doing this. But I think this was a trial balloon because I think the expectation was that conservatives would hop up and immediately pass uh, legislation to um, bar him from doing this. I think it, so I think in general, it's a fantastic move forward, but it is no substitute for changing the underlying law because another attorney general could come in and undo exactly what he did. And you're right, you know, are, are U.S. attorneys going to get uh, bad reviews if they're not enforcing this new guidance? Are they going to get fired? Um, you know, the attorney, attorney General Ashcroft had the opposite proposal. He would keep a list of a U.S. attorneys who did not um, push mandatory minimums to their fullest possibility. And so now we have an attorney general who's doing something different, but the problem is the underlying law. Has there been any effort by that, the, that predicted conservative movement to somehow legislatively overrule, or at least have the House pass a law overruling um, attorney general holder on this? I'm not aware of any. No, I, I, there has been grumbling, but I don't see the legislative calendar uh, lending itself to something that would make it through the House and Senate. Okay, I'm afraid we have run out of time, but would you please thank our panelists for a good discussion? Ah.